A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to Your Booked. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and I'm thrilled to be back in your ears for a brand new series. Firstly, my novel Limelight is out on the 1st of June. It's a story of sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem. If you pre-order in hardback from bookshop.org, you'll be entered into a prize draw to become a guest on this podcast. My local The Margate Bookshop can hook you up with a personalised signed copy. Just let them know how you'd like me to dedicate the book to you. You can also order signed copies from the fabulous Big Green Bookshop. They both deliver nationwide. And you can come and hang out. I'll be in conversation with Dolly Alderton on the 1st of June at the Fort Road Hotel in Margate. And I'm coming to the House of Books and Friends in Manchester on Monday the 12th of June. Also, you can now get tickets to the Pre-Madonna Festival in Suffolk for the last weekend of July, where I'll be in conversation with Rebecca Humphreys. Also, I'm going to be having some very interesting bookish bonus conversations, and I can't wait to share them with you. Shortly, I'm off to the Jaipur Literary Festival at Sanovifushi, where the speakers include DBC Pierre, Mary Beard and Christina Lam. Over on my Instagram, at the Daisy Bee, I'll be taking you with me, and you can meet these literary giants. Then, on Sunday the 11th of June, you can come with me to the Queen's Reading Room Festival at Hampton Court Palace. Tickets are now on sale. If you can get there, come and see speakers including the amazing, ostentatious, former podcast guest Kate Moss and the icon Dame Judi Dench. If you can't make it, you can join me on Instagram for some backstage interviews and more. Now, on to today's guest. We're opening with an author who gets a lot of mentions and a lot of love on this podcast. Her fans include Emily Henry, Marion Keyes, Lindsay Kelk, and obviously me. It's Vari McFarlane. I have been obsessed with Vari's books since I fell for her first novel, You Had Me at Hello. We're here to celebrate her brilliant brand new book, Between Us. It's just how I like my rom-coms, heavy on the com. The story of Rasheen trying to figure out whether her wrong and ex-boyfriend cheated on her by hiding the clues in plain sight in his TV show. We talked about Vari sneaking Gloria Steinem's Playboy expose out of the spare room, the Jane Austen characters we'd hate follow on Instagram, and our love of Helen Fielding and David Nichols. Enjoy. So I would love to begin by asking you, if someone says, let's talk about books, 
What are the books that you're most excited about talking about? Are they from kind of, you know, early in your reading life? Um, well, one of the things, right, you are um, the first podcast I've been invited on where I did homework because um, I really, really wanted, I really wanted to have interesting things to talk about. And I'm really grateful to you for asking about childhood reading because it made me go back and really kind of interrogate, like, what did I read as a kid? And you basically single-handedly made me realise that I probably had become a writer, if that, if that doesn't sound wanky, by about age eight or nine for my weird reading habits. <laughs> I think it was what like Brilliant. planted all the bulbs in the soil. Yeah, definitely. And so I I um, was a kid in the 1980s. And um, what I realised, which I'd never really thought about before, is that um, I was like, I wasn't allowed to watch obviously very adult films. And I wasn't allowed to watch adult telly. Like not, not in a weird restrictive way, just in that. You, you remember the whole watershed thing of like, you know, my mum would be like, oh no, that's full of sex and violence. You're not watching that thing that's on at half nine. What, <laughs> but what I realised is she never ever pleased books. And she had like... Uh, like a whole spare room full of books so all of my kind of illicit I want to learn about the adult world stuff came from going through bookshelves that I probably wasn't meant to be into so I had the kind of classic um childhood reading of like you know Narnia got really into Enid Blyton was obsessed with Agatha Christie um but the the books that really stick in my mind are all things that I kind of thieved off my mum's bookshelves that I wasn't meant to be reading like um Life and Loves of She-Devil Faye Weldon book um that was a big influence on me and also reading um kind of feminist memoirs so I read like Gloria Steinem um I was a playboy bunny if you know that it's basically her going undercover as a feminist <laughs> as a playboy bunny it's a fantastic bit of journalism this is really really radical stuff for you to be <laughs> growing up with it was the last you know the thing is daisy it was the last time i was an impressive reader but yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so let's talk about that because i don't know faye weldon nearly as well as i'd like to but i do remember seeing that title the lives and loves of a she-devil and thinking yeah. oh holy wow that's gonna be good yeah, and it was. Um, I think I could. I could be wrong. A memory plays tricks, but I've got a, um, a sort of memory of nineteen eighties books that I think that all the kind of um, the books they were trying to get women to buy of the time all had those kind of mirrored covers. Do you remember that sort of reflective covers and the big foiled names and everything? So it looked really thick. Yeah, the glossy embossed sort of lettering on yeah, the front. Yeah. Yeah. So with with She Devil, it was just stuff I absolutely didn't understand. Um, and I think it's something that's really important that actually is, I think we underrate how useful and brilliant it can be for kids to read stuff they don't really understand. Um, there's nothing wrong with not understanding things. Um, but it was all about, you know, the kind of the whole thing of like her being cheated on. And then it's it's very prescient because it's all the stuff about plastic surgery and everything. And of course, at the time that was, you know, this was all kind of dystopian and bizarre and nobody had plastic surgery. Um, and I remember just reading all of that and it just it just all going in. I don't know what I did with it. <laughs> I was fascinated by it. <laughs> so interesting to read that alongside Gloria Steinem at a time when we do start to be interested, don't we, in kind of attractiveness when we're eight or nine yes. and how we present ourselves and we're yeah. seeing examples of what's desirable and then reading this sort of polemic about why we shouldn't be Barbie. Yes, yes, very much. And, and you know, I remember that um, 
the Gloria Steinem had huge amounts of kind of uh, identification and sympathy with the other women doing the job. Some of them loved it, some of them didn't, um, and the kind of pressures of it and the fact that, you know, they would all come and take their high heels off and, and you, you weren't allowed. It was kind of, it's the male fantasy gaze thing, wasn't it, about like you have to present as being, uh, you know, this swan gliding and then what they were like backstage. But it was a very, it, it was a kind of very kind of sisterhood version of feminism in that she didn't judge the women that obviously were there as undercover feminist journalists or whatever um so yeah it was it was yeah it was really really made an impression on me it's it's a fascinating thing as well that like people just don't police books about for appropriateness for kids mm. in the same way as they do or generally anyway I know you know there's stuff going on in America at the, at the moment but we're very worrying stuff but on the whole we just don't take the same attitude like as a kid you can walk into Waterstones no one's going to stop you walking into a certain section and picking up a book and opening it at any page um, so it is that part of culture which is still just hugely available to you as a kid. Were there then any books you kind of had heard about or were aware of that we sort of you had to really plop to get your hands on? Um, the I don't recall much of that except Judy Bloom. I just remember ah. Judy Bloom being that you must get so, well. I don't want to say board days because I'm sure you're not, but you must get so used to having certain names come up. Um, but I remember Judy Bloom. I was obsessed with Forever. I mean, that's another book which is probably you know hugely. If I went back and read it now, and the experience of like coming on this podcast has made me think, God, I sh I should actually go back and reread stuff because it would be so interesting. So I'm absolutely sure that Forever has influenced my own writing. But I remember at our primary school there was some kind of I'm I'm so old but um, my primary school massively predates world book day and all that kind of fuss and we never had any of that but the one thing I do remember is in my old primary school there must have been something for charity where you know where somebody sits there and they read a book for you know they read three passages and then someone else comes along and reads stuff and you do it and you get sponsored it's like you know someone is always on that chair reading stuff and are you reading out loud reading out loud just... sorry yeah and I remember as all all going around my little gang of friends like we're going to choose forever to read. <laughs> and then it being, was it I can't believe I still remember this but I think in the edition you know the famous edition with that very 80s looking lad on it and the kind of brett on top I still have a suspicion that I need to go and check that chapter 47 is where the shagging occurs <laughs> I seem to remember <laughs> at eight or nine we all go yeah 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 and by your turn it's gonna be chapter 47 and I can't remember if actually anybody did have to read that chapter out would have absolutely owned our headmaster, Mr. Friedland, if we had <laughs> Oh, wow. So so some of Forever was read out loud. I think, yes, definitely the less spicy parts of Forever was read out loud because me and all my girlfriends, it was, you know, Judy Bloom was what we were going to seize upon. And I, I mean, I remember thinking, oh, if I have a daughter, I'll call her Deanie. Because there's that, oh. there's, there's the cultural cringe thing as well, isn't there? That um, obviously everything Judy writes is just so relatable. But also the fact it's American made it so cool to us little British girls yes. as well. I mean, Daisy, did you ever know a Deanie? I didn't know a Deanie. It was the coolest name I'd ever heard. <laughs> I didn't know a Deanie. I didn't know. I was just, I feel like, you know, my understanding of America was that everyone or every other person would probably be called Corey. Yeah. And that was a um, Corey yeah. or Cody. It was all the kind of I, ends in IE names, wasn't it, as mm. well? Yeah. <laughs> and there is, I can't remember if that, does that come up in Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret? And sort of, I'm sure there's one where she talks about how finding a way to like adapt your name into a cool nickname. Yeah. And that yeah. being something that 
it was a crucial signifier of whether you were allowed to to belong to the gang or not. Yeah, All of those yeah. tiny details are so brilliantly observed. Yeah, I must get back 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 on the bloom train. <laughs> back on the bloom train. It's, oh, that was that's something I think about a lot. That there's a rumor about another in um, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. There's a character called Laura, and she is sort of the most fully developed person in the class. And there are rumors about her, and she goes behind the I think the A&P with boys and I didn't know that the A&P is like a supermarket or a corner shop I thought that was like some other sex thing what what is the A&P yeah because you realize that when when um I am fortunate enough at the moment to have a a book deal in America and it means I get the American edits and you actually forget you know separated by a common language and all that you actually forget how many things um or, you know, that they go, what's this? What's that? And you, you're like, oh, yes, of course. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's there's tons of lingo and tons of references that we don't share. <laughs> I was thinking that about your books because they are so funny and I love them so much. And the jokes Thank are so you. specific. Thank you. And the, the, but the references are so kind of evoke something really specific for me in terms of the place and the time. A bit like, I suppose, Marion Keys also um, wow. does it and that, that works out for her. But how how much they have to adapt because I mean I think as well that's another thing where we are readers who have grown up reading whatever we can get our hands on yeah and yeah and again that thing when you're kids and you don't know and that is how you learn and you figure it out and you your vocabulary grows or not and or you're you know you have an embarrassing moment where you have to um (laughs) you're still on urban dictionary looking up A&P but um how your books are adapted for American audiences when uh, places in you know Manchester which I know a little bit because I've got family there and, yeah, and bars yeah. and things and I don't think you have to know Manchester super well but you do have to no. sort of know what what those big not London cities in the UK are and they're different from big um not coastal cities in yeah. the US god god knows what they've made of Nottingham twice over <laughs> they've always been very very nice about it and just gone yep yeah, okay this all this all makes sense <laughs> The, um, um, I remember this from going to New York on holiday um, a few years ago and um, the guy that was kind of doing the, the cycle tours at the time was saying Manchester is the big city that Americans know that isn't London because of all the bands because of all the music ah. because of the music and because of Manchester United so they do they have a little bit of a working guide um, but yeah it's always interesting when I get when I get the list of things we don't these are things we don't understand and it's really interesting because my um American editor will suggest substitutions, but she will try and find her way around it. And it's really interesting working out the things that she can't like figure out at all. And I, I remember years ago as well seeing um Q Laurie on Ellen. And and one of the things that Ellen couldn't figure out is the phrase chuffed to bits. And she didn't know if chuffed to bits meant really angry. <laughs> it's like I can't as a native. Chuffed to bits is so obviously positive to me. I can't imagine doing it negatively, but I suppose, you know, it's our A and P, isn't it? <laughs> Do you have any favourite books that have been adapted for screen where the screen versions made you love it more or love it less? Yeah. Or are there any books that you'd really wish they would make into movies? That's that is a brilliant question. I'm going to sneakily use it to bend it to my own agenda in that there's one book um we've not discussed which is from my childhood uh, well no from, it's an adult book but once again it's far as weird childhood it's an adult book I read in my 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 youthful years um but when I was thinking about 
um, what book made me want to become a writer? And there is there is no book that di that did that for me because I think you know I was forming as a human being concurrently with reading interesting books, and I'm not sure I would have had the conscious thought, oh, this you know I want to be a writer, I can do this because that always seemed like you know that's a mad thing anyway. That's like watching a movie and going, oh, I'm going to be Meg Ryan. It's like it's not going to happen. Um, but a book I read as a kid and it made a huge impression on me to the point where I can still remember lines of it to this day. Um, is a book called White Palace, um, which was made into a film, if you remember, with uh, James Spader and Susan Sarandon. And it's about kind of buttoned up middle class guy. I think he's um, a widower in it. And he's going to this kind of down at heel diner and he ends up in a sexual relationship with the diner waitress which is Susan Sarandon in the film, obviously. Um, and once again, my precocious childhood, I remember, it's quite sexually explicit, obviously, because that's the nature of the book. But it was just an extraordinary book, I think. And it's probably quite undersung. Like, I don't I don't really see or hear it talked about very much. Um, I'm Now, the author's name is Glenn Savan, I think. Um, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. S-A-V-A-N is the way it's spelled. Um, and I was genuinely shocked and like kind of a, a bit sort of emotionally winded by Googling him a few years ago and discovering he died really young, which I didn't even know. And there's a particular line in it um, that I still remember to this day, which is um, it's just a kind of off off moment thought by the, the the main character, the guy. And it was it was important not to mistake part of the truth for the whole of the truth. And I just I think even as a kid, like that struck me as like that's such an interesting emotional observation that something can strike simultaneously strike you as very true. But at the same time, don't imagine that it's telling you everything about the situation. And that's such a kind of mature, interesting, insightful thing. And, you know, this uh, this may be my egotistical uh, madness. I would like to think that maybe that sparks something in me of like, I would like to talk about feelings and complicated moments emotionally, but not in a really cliched way to actually like explore the stuff that we all kind of experience, but we don't fully articulate. Does that make any sense or have I gone completely mad at this point? No, <laughs> David, that David. is fascinating. It really, really is. And I don't know that book at all, but I want to read it. And I, I think those sort of mid to late century American books yeah. that are so fascinating studies of relationships and the emotional subtleties of those things. I That's all I want to read. Yeah. I can eat them up. I want nothing else. But yeah. thinking about in the way you write about relationships, which I think has sort of such depth and maturity and those that the books are full of people who, you know, especially men, boo. <laughs> <laughs> but, but men who are not necessarily wholly bad, but do and say bad, yeah, bad things, but not, but not with intention, just things that suit them, things that feel true at the time. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm fascinated by um, bigamists. This isn't um, <laughs> something that's a book at all, but I think all the time about a story that a I met a woman on a writers' retreat. She's a policewoman, and her boss, his daughter, was marrying a man, and everyone thought there was something a bit off about him. And it sort of turned out he was a bigamist, and he did insane oh. things to get out of the wedding in the run up to it, down including kind of pouring a kettle over his head and burning his face oh and trying to be hospitalised and get out of it and he still came to the wedding bandaged up like a mummy this is <laughs> very much third hand this is the maddest mad story it, it's really interesting I had, a, I had a conversation on a podcast last week where they said oh you know do you find it hard to write the bad guys or, or bad girls I should say and I said no weirdly maybe it says too much about me I actually 
check myself, stop and check myself more with really good people because you have to check your not kind of referring to your own ego or being unrealistic whereas with bad people it's like I do think I'm, I'm quite passionate about this I think don't write a person who behaves unpleasantly before you actually understand where they are if they, if you're writing a thriller and they're full ball psychopath then fair enough but I think obviously in the books I write it's far more common or garden bad behavior and I really think like try and understand that everyone is the main character in their own, their own story and everybody rationalizes and excuses their own bad behavior me fully included um and i think you that's what you have to do to write a real convincing arsehole first of all you have to sort of jump into their skin and sympathize with them a bit you have to get dirty dated is what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> you really have to see but that's it um joe in between us the the bad boyfriend i won't spoil <laughs> too much but his justification for what he's done it's yeah. so brilliantly frustrating to read because we've all had those conversations with someone that we're close to the sort of you know well i'm sorry i'm sorry you feel that way but <laughs> rationally you know, here is what i did nailed it. joe is i'm sorry you feel that way in one one person human form isn't he <laughs> extra frustrating because if he was like yes i'm a bastard what are you gonna do <laughs> You sort of you wouldn't have kind of gained anything from that, but I think because we have all been in those situations yeah. and we do all doubt ourselves, yeah. we, I think most of us as humans want to be good and do the right thing. Yeah. But we also sometimes think, well, I don't know what that, that is. And again, that line about a truth being a partial truth. And I think when we're children, we so want to believe in an absolute truth. And we're told that, that you know, that, the world yeah, is... Yeah is good and when bad things happen then there'll be kind of appropriate you know retribution and yeah which is what I mean my I loved Roald Dahl um as a child now it's it's complicated for all of us isn't it for all the, oh the reasons God. well well do you know what I think this will come as no surprise to you having talked about my mother's bookshelves as a child but my mum actually um refused to read me and my brother fantastic mr fox due to a lack of positive female role models <laughs> respect to fiona <laughs> she was right she caught him as a, a creepy old misogynist long long before i could have even pronounced the word misogynist <laughs> <laughs> you see now i'm thinking of a, a gender flip fantastic mr fox and um, um the the fun of writing the farmers <laughs> yes yes <laughs> He's a mesmerising storyteller. He's just a problematic old git up the wazoo, isn't he? <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> My mum's issue, weirdly, was, and it's not a very child-friendly response, or is it maybe? I don't know. That um, It's very kind of anti-adult, and all the adults are punished in such yeah. thrillingly, gory, dramatic, dark ways. No one in Roald Dahl, I think, is ever allowed the chance to fail and change and get better. There is no rehabilitation of a villain yeah which is that doesn't necessarily make for a dramatic story but that's what's interesting about humans I think how we change yes that's exactly right yes but so, do you know what a huge philosophical question I've never really got to the end of and, and frankly maybe it's good for a writer you shouldn't be getting to the end of it and just preaching all the answers as you see them um does anyone ever truly change and I'm I'm really I'm I'm not sure about that my suspicion is no in fundamentals we never change but it, you can learn different behavior I would I would suspect Ooh, I'm not trying to go very... Deepak Chopra into your <laughs> <laughs> Please do. It might help the ratings. 
Um, but the, just to finish our old doll discussion, the the thing that I find interesting about him, though, and I think one of the reasons that kids to this day are so hooked on him is that he will go to very dark places and he will have the gore and he will have people punished and he will have people die. And I think kids actually love that. I think he doesn't treat kids as kids. And, it, it, you know, I'd, I'm, I'm pretty good on remembering being a kind of early adolescent and maybe the later bits of childhood, I'm pretty crap at remembering anything under eight, to be perfectly honest, emotionally. Um, but I, what I do remember is you don't think of yourself as a kid. You think you're mm. a tiny adult, don't you? You think you're in the yeah, yeah, of yeah. adulthood. And, you, you know, you don't when you have conversations with your fellow kid friends, it's not in the spirit of, hey, we're all kids, is it? <laughs> you're, the most, you're the oldest people, you know, <laughs> you think you're all grown up. And I think Roald Dahl's part of his massive success is that he honours that he kind of knows mm. the kids are a kind of dark, a dark kind of little kind of set of emotions and responses, just like an adult. I think you're right. And there is that moment in Matilda that I think about all the time when the Trunchbull gets that girl in the playground and hauls her up by the pigtails and sort of throws her like a discus thrower. And there's lots of kind of hyperbole. And I think he sails through the sky for miles. And, um, oh, was it Lavinia, Matilda's friend? And, you know, she says, like, what are her parents going to say? And Matilda says, well, they're not going to believe her because that's how it is to be a kid. And you come home with a a tall tale and that's what it's seen as. And that does mean that evil adults have the freedom to to do that sort of thing. Obviously, it's unusual to fling a a show of superhuman strength, but that um, adults can act in a wrong and outrageous way when it's so wrong and so outrageous that you might not be believed. And that seemed like a real thing for the for an adult author to be yeah telling i mean my goodness that's almost the dynamics of how adults get away with abuse isn't it right yeah right there (laughs) but in some text um so so yeah mixed mixed on roll your book the most depressing (laughs) 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 the one where we went dark A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We'll be back with Vari soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen No Love Lost by Rachel Ingalls. This is a collection of thrillingly unsettling novellas. Sexy, scary, deeply sordid in places and transcendently pure in others. 
There are haunted houses and haunted lives. Ingalls prose is addictive, stark, elegant and utterly compelling. And also, as you probably know, I tend to avoid dystopian stories, but this collection finishes with the only dystopian tale I've ever really loved. No Love Lost by Rachel Ingalls is published by Faber and out now. Now back to Vari. That was an interesting thing that I wanted to come back to about whether or not we ever change and yeah. that you think we we don't fundamentally change but our behaviour can because I think that um, that's why I read books because I'm curious about whether or not people can change and I suppose perhaps maybe people are responding with something that's in their nature anyway yeah. so maybe it's just an uncovering yeah, yeah. Um, but I suppose that's why the the reversal of fortune books are so interesting yeah and do you think you prefer to see people with nothing get something or people with everything lose it when you're reading not in real life (laughs) (laughs) um I like to see people I like to see like it oh my god it's such a cliche from all the bloody writing manuals and advice and everything but it's that thing about um in drama put your characters under pressure and you'll find out who they are um, I am definitely interested in seeing people <clears throat> have the kind of architectural coping mechanisms they've got stripped away. And by the way, if it's not, it's, it's only this is going to sound really egotistical, but it's actually just because of the ease of reference versus my poultry reading habits. But um, in my book, Who's That Girl? I was really interested in social media and how we sort of build we build a shop window for ourselves and sell ourselves as wares on on social media, you know, at whatever level, like that doesn't mean you have to be an influencer. I think we all do it. Like it's that thing about, you know, our online presence is a highlights reel. And I think that's Mm. true pretty much of everyone, isn't it? And so I was really interested in taking someone who had this very shaky facade and it, but it was her one thing that she used to cope and then just having it all torn down and taken away from her. And like, who, who are you when the thing that you've put all kind of your stock into as your self-worth into, who are you when that's taken away? I find that I like that is something I just keep coming back to because I just find it so interesting. Um, and that's it's, it's great for a romance novelist as well, because so much of it is, oh, I thought I had this life, but I actually don't. I was thinking about that dimension of um who's that girl which um the point of trivia i loved it. i think uh, marina o'loughlin lent me her proof so hello oh marina I don't know if you're you've, you've mentioned um, marina i'm such a fangirl of marina i just think her writing's incredible she is such a fangirl of yours i hope oh. your ears are burning because they are um, often excitedly discussed uh, when you've got a new book out uh, but to um I'm going to be an egomaniac and a self-referential monster. So my new book... <laughs> well, it's now become the theme. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do it, who will? But my new novel, Limelight, uh, which is out in June next month, it's about, um, I don't name the site, but it's someone who is using OnlyFans, who has an account, and she's posting sexy, explicit photos of herself to shore up her self-esteem, because in real life she feels too big she's always been teased and mocked about her body um her mum has lots of opinions about her body she doesn't really know what to do with herself or how to be she idolizes her her big sister who is little who's sort of petite and beautiful but at the same time she is I think naive in that she thinks she can sort of hide in plain sight she's what she's really tried to do is craft 
a version of her that has nothing to do with real her. Yeah. And is able to kind of run those two selves. Almost, I think for her, it's like she's playing, is it, when I say second life, that might be a weird like yes. diet supplement, oh I don't know. Good, good reference. It's been it's been years now with second life, hasn't it? But yeah, I really remember that being such a huge thing. But, yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten that it was in my head until that point. <laughs> but how, and obviously, inevitably, disaster strikes and events happen and her private self is exposed and linked to her real self and there are consequences of that and one of the things that comes up is she's sort of saying there are lots of people who are on OnlyFans or you know whatever you're using who are embracing it and confident about it and who feel fully behind the brand that they've crafted and you know they're not hiding away and that but other people where if you're trying to use it to shore up an identity that you're not sure of in your own core yeah if you feel mutable and uncertain deep down the whole in your soul as they say yes (laughs) and obviously I dare say most of us are not monetizing our needs you know if (laughs) if you are Uh, speak for yourself Dave I wish I wish you (laughs) think I'd get 38 pence Um, I don't know how to respond to that. So you make <laughs> billions of pounds. That's a weird thing to say. Dale, Dale, the cost this of is living crisis. <laughs> With social media, which I think we all feel some obligation to use, even if it's with friends and family and people who know as well, that kind of image crafting in a way that, and we know, you know, intellectually, the harm it's doing. Yeah. And we know intellectually that it's in some way, I think, estranging us from our friends and the people we are close to because when we feel like we know things and we're maybe not asking enough questions again it's back to partial truths that aren't whole truths isn't it yeah but you know it, it really intrigues me that there is a fairly standard line of questioning for romance authors now which goes oh no wasn't your wasn't your whole genre ruined by social media because now everyone's in touch all the time it's like are you mad that's like saying when they invented the telephone everyone stopped having arguments it's like no <laughs> like no we we got so much new material out of it I I feel sorry for thriller writers because I do think CCTV and mobile phones completely Mm. changed completely changed what they can get away with Mm. but no for romance authors it's absolute feast I think you know imagine what Jane Austen would have made of Instagram um Mm. no it's the fact that you can the fact basically give human beings more ways to communicate does not automatically mean human beings are being more honest probably the the opposite as we've just said like there's there's more dishonesty and there's more peacocking and there's more kind of you know the the only thing I would say is I now I always have to honor the fact that if anyone meets anyone interesting in the romance you're going to look them up online if you're under 50 at least definitely mm. uh, you can't get away with I had no he was fascinating but I was in left in mystery until he visited three weeks later like that. <laughs> you, you've got to have a look if he's on Facebook but apart from that it's like it's incredible it's absolutely incredible resource I think because there yeah there is just so much showing off and like you say there's just so many psychological dimensions to it as well the kind of fractured identity um and we're all you know most of us are participating to some degree or another and most of us have conflicted feelings about it i was just thinking how quickly i would hate to follow say mr collins from pride and prejudice if he was on instagram (laughs) and i thought <laughs> who would you which characters would you be desperate to follow and is there anyone you'd hate to follow 
Oh, well, well, let, let, let's stick with um, Austin for simplicity. Um, you would definitely, definitely hate follow Wickham, wouldn't you? And see what mm. he's up to. See how he was dissembling. Think of the thirst traps. <laughs> the Wickham thirst traps. But Darcy would be above it, wouldn't he? He wouldn't be on there. He'd like, every <laughs> every four weeks, you get like a, a blurry picture of a dog. And you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> By the way, I've never, you're honoured here, um, I've never ever done crib notes for being on a podcast before, but um, your, yours merited it because you've just got, your questions are so incisive, your guests are so impressive, it's like, but God, Barbara, you can't be clowning yourself on your book. Um, so one of my talking points regards Austin was, um, it's such a cliche for someone in my genre to go, oh, you know, Pride and Prejudice, it's the lodestar, which it is. Um, but actually, my favourite Austin is Persuasion. And I ripped it off to a band playing for my first book, You Had Me at Hello. And my sister, to her immense credit, is the only one who spotted just how hard I ripped it off. I was like, oh. she was like, haven't you done Clueless on Persuasion? I was like, yes. <laughs> yes I no one's ever noticed when um, Rachel goes to a dinner party with Ben and he's making coded barbs at her from the end of the table about, you know, it's just a nonsense that you think someone's destined for you and all of that. And it's all it's all totally ripped off Persuasion where Wentworth is saying things about he's not he's not impressed by women who are easily persuaded in front of Anne. <laughs> I love that. That is a very exciting podcast exclusive. I'm going to have to reread. You had me at hello now because I did not. I was not clever enough to pick up on that. But I was just thinking about, you know, because I talk a lot about um, Bridget Jones and how much I love yes. Bridget Jones. And I know lots of people do not love Bridget Jones for all kinds of good reasons, but it being such a sort of point by point referencing of Pride and Prejudice yes. and a, a retelling of Pride and Prejudice with the bizarre exception of, and, you know, I wouldn't want Bridget Jones to be any different. I think it's great, but I thought it's got everything apart from the sisters, <laughs> which... Oh, of course, yes. Unless you think, unless you think the friends gang stand in for the sisters, I suppose, but it's not the same because the sisters are obviously in Pride and Prejudice far more kind of um, they get across Elizabeth, <laughs> whereas they're not just they're not a chorus of approval, are they, <laughs> or support? <laughs> and I suppose her mum is um, Mrs. Bennett and Lydia. Oh, of course, yes, she is. Oh my God, now you've blown my mind. I've never seen. That before. <laughs> Yes. I feel like we should have spliffs for this conversation. <laughs> Way ahead of you. <laughs> have, a, have a YouTube channel. Jane Austen isn't everything, man. <laughs> well, do you know, Bridget Jones was on my list of things to talk about as well in that um, it's massively of its time. Um, I, I have an interesting relation to it, relationship to it myself anyway, in that I kind of, I think I first became aware of it as a precocious, angry 20-something and thought, oh my God, this says nothing to me. This is a rich lady in West London and what's all this? And then I remember like reading it two years later and thinking this is a work of comic genius. So clearly it just has to catch you <laughs> the exact right age, which it did. Um, but I always think the thing about Bridget Jones is it's, she's not, she's not, um, Helen Fielding is not praised enough for being a comic novelist, is she? Because fundamentally, that's what it is. It's just incredibly brilliant comic writing. And if you if you love Fleabag, you should also love Bridget Jones, really, because it's just as clever in terms of like putting a window on a world and being like, this is the stuff that goes through our head as women that we're not really allowed to articulate. 
which is an incredible achievement, really. And so all the kind of things that I, I reacted badly to about, like, oh, you're rich in West London, obsessed with getting married, and that's not me. Well, that's really got nothing to do with it. It's about, like, that internal monologue, isn't it? That's it, I think. Because, again, I think, like, your spare room books, I read it at a time when, and I wish I could remember exactly how old I was, but definitely a sort of, like... 11, 12, 13-ish, impressionable, I'm going to say. And it was, I was just, she's just got her own flat and a job. And she gets to go with, like, before her job in the very morning, she has a cappuccino and a chocolate croissant. Even, and it even, all even worse, Daisy, in the film, she has a flat in Borough Market, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> totally believable. Totally sold on that. I think that was the first book I'd read with a romantic, like, I was, I mean, you know, course she has to be with Mark Darcy and that's all fine and hooray and I like Mark Darcy and you know nice 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 but as a kind of how two humans can be together I was much more interested in her and Daniel Cleaver perhaps especially because I'm really enjoying the reruns of As Time Goes By um on BBC4 um because I'm down with the kids and I watch all the cool shows all the box sets and Alistair in his time goes by is such a proto cleaver and obviously there was that was the guy at the time we're in this industry we know there are like five very very posh men who run everything that's all women absolutely clean headshot But yeah, that sort of that whole world, and I suppose, it's, you know, with it being in publishing and all the jokes about that Kafka's motorbike and oh, the kind oh. of, you know, the literati and the sort. And I think that was like reading um, the glossy Sunday supplements and the only kind of glossy mags that would have been in the house. And there'd be jokes written by Will Self and jokes made by Will Self yeah, and about yeah. him. And I'd never really get it, but I'd always be sort of trying to, to catch up and think. And because that was it, because I was just so... I was not ever good at being a kid. That what you were saying about, you know, kids don't feel like they're kids. And I think, and I also, maybe I felt like, all the other kids probably felt like they weren't good at being kids either. But I did look at them and feel like I was on the other side of something in a very like Adrian Moley. Yes. I was choosing to be persecuted to a point. Yeah, yeah. And I and I remember saying school was just like a prison, but your crime is being young. <laughs> I was like, like Rick from young ones. But I was like I was so conscious there was a big exciting adult world out there that I wasn't allowed to join and I and I was straining at the leash to join it. And I remember sitting on the, the school field and reading Smash Hit. And being completely obsessed with all the kind of bylines of all the journalists and be like, I could do that. I want to do that. I want to be that person. And I was like, yeah, it was just I thought childhood was absolutely rubbish. And I I can't really relate to people who are like best years of your life. Um, I, I very much felt like, no, it's rubbish. And you have to go to bed at a certain time and parties go on and you can kind of hear them from upstairs, but you can't join them terrible and I think books are a massive portal into that's my way of joining the adult world isn't it that's my way of spying on them I've got parties in books as well and it's taken me a really long time to come to terms with the fact that there's no parties no good parties in real life and I'm still going hoping it's going to be like the magic party (laughs) in a book I think there's a bit in um Sweet Sorrow the David Nichols book where they're all doing summer stock and there's sort of a youth theatre thing and they go to this a perfect party at a posh person's house there's a tongue twister and there's a pool (laughs) to add to the alliteration to add to the peas but it's a really beautiful midpoint in the book where all the characters are getting what you hope for them and I think they're snogging like um I don't know if you read um 
Malaby Rising by Taylor Jenkins Reid, where I think the last half of the book sort of centres around this party in real time. And the whole, throughout the book, they keep saying, you know, there's this party and are you coming? And it's the siblings and their annual party is like the biggest event of the year. And But it's not a grand thing. It's not like a sort of Gatsby Mansion affair. Yeah. They're all, you know, going to their sort of their place in Malibu. But the party is sort of movie stars kind of <laughs> swinging from light fixtures and things falling down and fires and things breaking. People dive bombing the swimming pool, zip lining into the swimming pool. <laughs> I found it really stressful. I didn't think, oh, look at this like hilarious, dazzling hedonism, like, you know, rich brats having a lovely time. Like, Can they not just all have a lovely chat? Like, you know, get off with each other, sure, but don't break the house. <laughs> Do you know, I'm glad you raised David Nichols so we can tick another romance author interview cliche box and talk about One Day, if you're a fan of One Day. Yes, because much like Bridget Jones, yes, Dexter and Emma, hooray, yes. love them, want them to be together like everybody else in the universe. But that's not why I love that book. I yeah. love it for because it's so funny and it's so... Yeah brilliantly observed that's that's it you're exactly right it's like it's all seen through the prism of uh, it's a romance um but actually what he does as well is just incredible social history like even from the start there's a great line about um how girls like emma at university in the 80s have a have a moony poster of um nelson mandela on the wall as if he's another <laughs> rock star pinup and right through the book he keeps doing that like dexter being a real wanker in the 1990s being on tv and the kind of the, the place they go i forget it's the re- really can you even know is it like the atlantic or something it was like a restaurant in the 90s that was absolutely mm. place to go and it's huge and then the bit where um when they all start getting married that's the thing, like romance authors, like people mock them for like, oh, it's all weddings. But weddings are fascinating for social observation. Like the whole, you know, you put on a show to the rest of the, the, the world, really, about this is who we are. And um, there's a bit where um, Emma, the, they all get wealthy enough that they start having the kind of fancy venue weddings where you have to put the covers over your stiletto heels and they can afford Motown bands. But she gets, do you remember at Dexter's wedding, she gets her car parked by the valet, but it's a crappy banged up old car. And it's that thing that, you know, everyone starts to have these really disjointed levels of wealth in your friendship group as well. (laughs) It's just so brilliantly observed. The the awkwardness being captured because I think when I read it I felt a lot like Emma working at the Mexican restaurant having just graduated and everyone else seemed to be kind of doing all these incredible exciting things and that I mean that's such a Dexter going traveling yeah that if you're a rich kid yeah you can do that and you don't think oh my god but what if I can't get a job when I come back because that's just not an issue and you still fall on your feet anyway and but even Dexter having it and I think a lot about when I think Suki his co-presenter on I can't remember the name of the the very 90s show they're on but she is so brilliantly written and so evocative um yeah and again another plug for BBC4 because it's the only (laughs) channel I watch I love it um when you see some of those people like um, Anthea Turner and Jackie Brambles, and you can kind of see that that Suki in them. And then yeah. there's a bit later where I think Dexter's alone with his kid and his wife has gone out 
And he's really, he is the sort of man who calls looking after his own children babysitting. Yeah. And he's freaking out and I think he's drinking and doesn't know what to do. And I think his mum has just died. Sorry for the spoiler. And he turns on the telly and Suki has gone on to like present the national lottery. And she's having this sort of glowing mainstream career. Yeah. You see Emma having those moments of feeling kind of low and left out and isolated. Oh God, and Emma's affair with the headmaster and Ian. Oh. Emma's relationship with Ian oh, is my, so oh, well drawn. God. So sad. Ian Ian and the headmaster, yeah, absolutely pierced my heart, the whole thing. And and the kind of like Ian is such an incredible character as well because you just feel for him. He's hopeless and he's totally wrong for her. And he's clearly an interim, he's an interim partner, isn't he? He's the one before the one and all of that. Um, but he's drawn with such sympathy. And you can tell Dave Nichols is tearing bits of himself and putting them on the putting them on the page with that, can't you? It's just like that he he wants to be funny, but he's not funny enough and all of that kind of thing. That kind of like creative um kind of what's the word striving but not feeling that he's going to make the mark and kind of deep down knowing that he isn't oh my god yeah brilliant I love his book The Understudy which I think he wrote before one day and that again being about an actor who's just not quite successful enough to make it I think that book is is so great and it stands up on its own and it's so funny and it's so sad but you can sort of see those like proto Ian bits and how that was evolving. Yes you're right I'd never made that connection before you're exactly right that's proto Ian isn't it and I I once fangirled um, David Nichols and and messaged him about that book and he said thanks Barry and he said you can't rewrite them once they're on the shelves can you but I would rewrite that one. (laughs) (laughs) And again I think always so interesting to think about um, writers and I don't know if you ever do this where being now I'm trying to write my fourth novel yeah and I'm trying to sort of take a long view and think whatever book I'm writing at the time is as good as I can make it at the time and the fortunes of that book are largely out of my control the only thing I can do is write as well as I can and hope yes and I think do you know I gained a degree of mental health back I think when I realized all books are just a snapshot of where you are at that point in your life and what you can get done within that amount of time and you sort of throw stuff at a wall and some of it works and some of it doesn't and you move on and actually there is a genuine beauty to the fact that you in a, in a year's time you would write a different book that's great because you know that's as it should be uh, you've recorded a moment in time which was your job but yeah the whole thing of like oh no it's not good enough it's like I, I've always felt like if only like exactly like Dave Nichols if only I could go back and rewrite it it's like it's actually good that you can't oh because it would never end would it it, it would, would never, never ever stop yeah and what your perception of perfection is to someone else is that you're actually spoiling what's interesting about it is one of the most one of the most interesting things I've learned in 11 years of writing novels is um I always I'm so arrogant about thinking I know exactly what's good about it and exactly what's bad about it I know where all the bodies are buried I know all the bits that didn't work um and actually I've discovered no you actually don't understand the book that well you don't really know how well or badly you did if that doesn't sound weird um you you know you're too close to it you're the one person who's too close to it let it out into the world and see what see what happens but yeah, I, de- I definitely realised I'm I'm not the best judge and it's better that I don't have that kind of despotic control. And if I could get some of my books back off the shelf and rewrite them, I'd probably ruin things that work just fine and add bits in that are crap that no one would like. So. <laughs> I mean, I feel like it's the stuff that bad dreams are made of as well. When you've got that like, OK, you, you have definitely delivered the book and it's on the schedule. Yeah. And then you sort of wake up, it's like, no, yeah. come back for you like a zombie. That's true. What a nightmare. They could make us carry on editing, Daisy. What could be worse? <laughs> oh, dear. I'm going to 
have nightmares about that for sure. Um, Vari, I could, I want to carry on this conversation. I was like, well, we should go for lunch or something. And it's about lunchtime. But tonight, I'm very sad about this, but I do have to draw things to a close. I would love to ask you um, if there's anything that you are sort of looking forward to reading or excited about if the podcast had photos if it was a visual medium i could send you a picture of my bedside table and my to be read poll is genuinely hilarious it's just it's about 20 books tall at the moment and is about to collapse onto the cat but um i've been told wonderful things this is by the way this is a complete snapshot of what happens to be there at the moment um but um i've been told wonderful things about leanne moriarty um, and I, I think it's Apples May Fall is the one next to my bed. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, last year, I read one of the Lisa Jewell thriller novels that I thought was brilliant or suspense. I'm not, I'm not, do you know what? Take, take a romance author out of a category. She's not sure what, what to call them by. If, if Lisa is considered thriller, um, she's just some proof of her new one. Uh, none of this is true and I I think I've, I've read oh that's a great name yes isn't it brilliant that's exactly what I thought when I when it arrived and um um I've been a fan of Lisa since um Ralph's party and Vince Same. is my favorite I love Ralph's party. and she's such an extraordinarily talented writer and um I love I love anyone in genre proving that actually if you've got the skill set of a writer that people sort of they almost like kind of put romance authors in a bit of a pink sparkly ghetto but it's like no if you've got the skills to do this you've got the skills to do that because it's all writing um so it's been so brilliant to watch her demonstrate how brilliant she is um so I'm really looking forward and I know I'm I'm kind of nervous Daisy and I know that when I pick her new one up I won't be able to put it down <laughs> I just have to set aside two days where I'm paying attention to no one so that's kind of what I'm looking forward to at the moment that is it one day I wish I'm trapped but if we could only if we got sponsored by some sort of holiday company but I suppose it's not just going away is it it's the time too yeah. that, that would be oh my god and you know I, once again when um I got the wonderful invite to be on this podcast I was thinking about I remember going on a package holiday to Tunisia when I was I don't know mid-20s but this again how old I am this is pre-smartphones and I remember cheerfully taking seven paperbacks because obviously this is pre-e-readers as well seven paperbacks in my um luggage and just one a day one a day in coming back with like seven books read and like they, they, um sadly this is the day before fractured attention spans and, and like listlessly scrolling instagram isn't it <laughs> oh i would i would love to have that attention span back can you remember what any of the books were or are they well, and you know and that was the next time. thing i thought i thought i would love to know it was probably nothing earth shattering or that i'd be particularly proud to brag about on here i'd have to go back to what big books were out um when you were 25 and going to Tunisia but I tell you what I've always been a sucker for the you know the craze book and um, not craze as in Cockney Gangsters as in C and I and you get it less and less with the advent of Kindle but you know when you're on your easy jet or your Ryanair and you look around the plane and everyone's got a Steve Larsen book in their hands I kind of I do buzz off that a bit I love that and I and I do and I have to it's like I read the Da Vinci Code I read the Steve Larsons it's like if everything's a craze if something's a massive craze I want to know why I'm just really nosy not in a, um, a kind of authorly way like I must know what is successful <laughs> because I am really high achieving <laughs> just pure nosiness like if everyone loves this so much what what has it got about it that makes everybody want to buy it Zari thank you so much it has been an absolute pleasure I'm so 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 happy that we had you on the podcast thank you so much for coming thank on thank you I've loved it thank you so much huge thanks to Vari. 
Between Us is out now and it is so funny, sharp, smart and warm. It's a rom-com with huge depth, an addictive read that explores a very serious subject, manipulation and emotional abuse, while celebrating women, friendship and connection, and I think it features her hottest love interest yet. Vari is such a brilliant world builder, she writes books I want to live in. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find all the books Vari mentioned at acast.com slash booked and you can see a selection at bookshop.org. You can find us and follow us on social media at whybooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. If you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we would really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people find the podcast and their new favourite book. Finally, I leave you with this from Deborah Levy. Be sure to enjoy language. Experiment with ways of talking. Be exuberant even when you don't feel like it, because language can make your world a better place to live. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina.